Well, at this point, usually when we start a series, a new series at Grace through a book of the Bible, we will give the whole Sunday to what we call a reading service, to read the entire book in one sitting. Sometimes in the past, we've had books like Genesis, and we just had to take a chunk of it at a time. We couldn't fit it all in on a Sunday. This morning is quite the opposite. The book of Titus, um, if we were reading it quickly, could probably get through in about six minutes. Uh, So this morning, we are going to have both reading service and our first sermon in Titus uh, that Jackson is going to preach. And a few weeks back, I asked Philip Massey uh, to be our reader for the morning, uh, which he was glad to do. This last week, he and I got together to to run through it and, and kind of practice it in here. And he said, oh, by the way, I just decided to memorize it. So no big deal. Uh, so he memorized it, which I think, again, we'll, we'll, you'll see. It beautifully uh, shows how the word med- meditated on and memorized is digested uh, and then able to be communicated sort of with the meaning with which Paul intended for it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, as I was saying earlier, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent 
and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Good morning, Grace. Thank you, Philip. That was fantastic. Wow. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Titus if you haven't already done so. And while you turn there, I have a question for you. How many of you have been to Disneyland and rode Pirates of the Caribbean? Can I see some hands? Okay. Um, if not, maybe you've seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, you'll be able to hang with this either way, I hope. Um, so if you go on Pirates of the Caribbean, you start to go on this ride. Eventually, you come into a pirate town, right? Do you remember what you see when you come into this pirate town? It's a, a bride auction. You see essentially a slave auction as you enter into this pirate town. And then what? Rabble rousing. You, you see drunkenness and you see these pirates chasing each other and just living in this crazy, mischievous, uh, really out there sort of way. They're shooting guns at each other. They're chasing each other around. They're fighting each other. Uh, they're not being safe. <laughs> um, and all of this reminds me of Crete. When I think of Crete, I think of the pirate city of Tortuga. <laughs> and one of the big reasons for that is Titus 1, uh, verse 12 and 13, which Philip just wonderfully uh, recounted for us. It says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Crete was a place of rabble rousing. It was a place where people abused the freedom that had been afforded to them. It was a place where people lived like hedonists. It was a place that was known for raising up a mercenary army and then sending that army off at the highest bidding. It was a place known for lies and celebrating lies and manipulation and deception. And not only that, but it, it, it wasn't just that people were doing all of this stuff because they were seeking to have a good time. And this was baked into their DNA in an extremely significant way because of their religious and philosophic system. 
Uh, one of the interesting things uh, about studying for this passage that I was unaware of was that Crete has their own version of uh, Greek gods. And so Zeus, according to the Cretans, was not the sort of Zeus that we tend to think of, but he was more like a man who attained godhood by uh, certain acts in this life. He's actually a guy. He's, he's named, I think, Picus. And so he, he manipulated people and he swindled people and he effectively tricked women into sleeping him to the point where he eventually was able to gain enough notoriety so that he became God. And so this is what is informing this society. This is what is encouraging this society. This society. It's a pretty messed up place. And God, the God of all glory, the God who knows all, who is wise and good and just, he looks upon Crete and he says, this is where I will build my church. This is where I will be pleased to display my glory and shine the light of Christ like a beacon in the night. And so we see in the very beginning of Titus, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, write to his true child in the faith, a common faith, Titus. And what does he do? He says, Titus, you are to go and establish churches. And in doing so, you are going to take the chaos of Crete, take the dysfunction of Crete, and you're going to put it into order. You're going to bring order out of chaos through the normal means of grace that I have given to my people. Establish churches, instruct them in discipleship and preaching and sound doctrine. This is how I'm going to display my glory. This is how I'm going to bring order out of chaos. And so um, this morning, the, the question that we want to concern ourselves with is we dive into Paul's instruction to Titus, who is taking up residence in Crete in this chaotic, dysfunctional place, is how will God bring order out of chaos? How will God bring order out of chaos? Paul's going to point to himself in these four verses and point to his own apostolic ministry as an example for how God works through ministry to do incredible things. So how is God going to bring order out of chaos? Two points this morning that we're gonna see from Titus 1, 1 through 4. God brings order out of chaos through ministry that has a mission. God brings chaos, order out of chaos through ministry that has a mission. And second, God brings order out of chaos through ministry that has a motivation. God brings order out of chaos through ministry that has a motivation. So we've already read our text for the morning. So I'm gonna ask if you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, to gather together as the saints, as the redeemed, as those who have been chosen and set apart uh, in Christ. We pray that you would meet with us and that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears so that we could commune with you, experience your goodness, experience your grace, and be instructed, edified, equipped, and built up in our faith. We give you this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, first point, ministry has a mission. And this is how God is going to bring order out of chaos. Um, this introduction that we're considering this morning, Titus 1, 1 through 4, it serves us. 
And it serves us by helping us to get what Paul is concerned about for the church at Crete. And in doing this, and Paul laying out his heart for the church of Crete and, and, and pointing to his own ministry, we get a sense for what God cares about and what God desires for his church and for ministry more generally. All of this clarifies the mission of ministry. What does God desire for ministry to look like? What does God desire the, the goal of ministry to be? What does God desire local churches like Grace to work towards? Uh, what's our end to be that we are to work towards? Look at Titus 1.1. God gave Paul to the church. Paul was an apostle and a servant or maybe more uh, faithful to the wording, a slave or a bondservant even. In other words, Paul was one who was set apart and possessed a unique authority to establish, edify, instruct, and equip the church. And Paul did this as one who willingly entrusted himself to God to participate in this mission. He wasn't uh, forced into this uh, uh, separate from his will. No, it was his joy to serve the church. It was his joy to humbly participate in what God had called him to do. He is God's servant and he serves the pleasure of God to accomplish God's purposes so that this world might be full of God's glory. And so what does Paul hope to accomplish through this ministry that he has been called to, that has been entrusted, uh, that he's been entrusted with? What's the goal of his ministry? Verse one, again, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The mission of ministry is introduced with this preposition for. For. Paul is an apostle and a slave for. The church exists for. Ministry exists for. For what? For the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So we want to look at these two statements uh, one by one. First, Paul's ministry is for the purpose of bringing about the faith of God's chosen and set apart people. Paul's ministry is for calling people, causing people to depend upon Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to hope in Jesus, to rest in Jesus to find their life in Jesus. And this is to happen initially for salvation and in an ongoing day by day sort of way. Everything that Paul does is aimed at bringing about this sort of faith in God's set apart people. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that he came to the Corinthians in humility, simply preaching the word of Christ. Why? so that God would demonstrate his power and might so that their faith would rest not in the wisdom of men like Paul, but in God. Paul cared that people believed in Jesus initially and in an ongoing manner. And so he preached and so he proclaimed, so he taught, so he labored, so he suffered, 
So he was uh, imprisoned, so he was shipwrecked, so he was beat. So he became a fool so that people would believe in Jesus. Initially and in an ongoing way, experiencing the life of Jesus. But um, this wasn't it. Paul's mission was also summed up in the idea of God's chosen people's knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul wanted God's elect people, his chosen and set apart people to know the truth and to live according to it. And and be clear here, when, when Paul refers to the truth, he's not referring to truth generally. He's not just saying, I want you to know true things. He's not even specifically saying, I want you to know true doctrine here. No, Paul is talking about a very specific truth, a word of truth. When Paul says that I want you to know the truth, he's saying, I want you to know the gospel word. That is the word of truth that we are concerned with, concerned with here. Paul is saying that he's concerned with the life of faith being a life where there is a greater and greater understanding of the true gospel. There's a greater and greater awareness of the true gospel, a greater and greater appropriation of the true gospel. Anyone who's walked with the Lord for any amount of time can tell you that the true gospel, God saves sinners in Christ, is wonderfully simple. It's so simple that our preschoolers can be learning about it to your right, right now. And that message can be the the power of God for salvation for them. That can affect them and change their lives at three years old so that they live for Jesus as redeemed people for the entirety of their lives. But at the very same time, that gospel message is so complex. God saves sinners in Christ that the most learned and studied theologians can spend their entire lives wrestling with that and mining that truth, never to come close to reaching the bottom. Kenny talks about in our membership class, whenever you say God saves sinners, you have to start defining those words. Well, what God? Which God? What kind of God? What are the characteristics of God? He saves? What does that mean? What do we need to be saved from? What do we save to? Sinners. Who are sinners? Am I a sinner? What's the nature? You, you can go so far with this. What this passage is saying is, is that, that Paul's ministry, his apostolic ministry is for people coming to a greater and greater understanding of this gospel, an awareness of this gospel, an appropriation of this gospel, it affects everything about who they are such that there is an ethical component to this. If we live the life of faith and grow in our knowledge of the gospel, we should live godly lives. It should all accord with godliness. The measure of our true knowledge of the gospel is that we live godly, upright lives full of love. This is a theme that we're really going to consider uh, as we go throughout the study of this book of Titus. It's one of the major themes that we be sound in both doctrine and deed, um, that we live by faith and that our faith works itself out in love and practice. And so we we don't want to spend too much time here, but I will share a a J.I. Packer quote. He says that if our theology doesn't quicken the mind and soften the heart, then it runs the risk of hardening both. That's the idea Uh, behind this verse. So this passage is clarifying for us, I think, the target of Christian ministry. 
This is so important for us to get as a church because at the end of the day, we want to be a church. And we want to function as a church. We want to, to uh, live out our purpose as a local church. And we want to strive to get God's objectives front and center so that we can do that. And getting this wrong can be massive with massive implications and consequences. Matt Emmons is an American rifleman, a rifle shooter who competes in the Olympics. And I read a story about him this past week uh, that was recounting his 2004 Olympic experience. Emmons is a noted rifleman, he's really good. And he competed in this one event where there's basically three stages to the event. At first, you lay down on your stomach and you aim at a target and shoot. Then you come up onto your knees and you shoot at the target. And then finally you stand and you shoot at the target and the, the, the end score uh, determines the winner. And Emmons is so good that after his first two shots, he was nearly guaranteed a victory. All he had to do was get a decent shot off and him being an expert marksman, pretty much guaranteed that would happen. He was gonna win gold. He was going to get that thing which he had worked his entire life for, which he had labored for, which he had worked for, practiced for, trained for. It was all, it was all gonna be there. All I had to do was hit that final shot, just sort of okay and he would, and he would do it. And so Emmons walks up and he prepares himself pulls the gun up and he aims down the sights, breathes in deeply and pulls the trigger. Boom. And then he hears the thud of the bullet hitting the target. And he sees the imprint come out. Boom. He did it. He hit the target. Gold medal is his. Except it wasn't. You see, Emmons aimed at and shot at a target. It just wasn't his target. See, he aimed at the target to the left of his target and he did a great shot. I mean, he nailed that thing, but <laughs> it wasn't his target. And so it did not count. He got a zero score and he did not win the gold medal. No. This simple, silly mistake cost the man a gold medal that he'd worked his entire life for. That was the consequences of him missing the target, missing the mark. Now that's terrible. I feel bad for this guy, but in all fairness, he did eventually go and win a gold medal. But as bad as that, what that would be, there's not a whole lot of eternal significance attached to winning a gold medal in the Olympics, is there? No. What happens when the church aims at the wrong target? What happens when we get our mission as the church wrong? We don't lose out on a golden medal. No, there's something far greater we miss out on. God is not glorified as he deserves. God's glory doesn't fill the earth as it should. What happens, people don't grow in their faith and they don't grow in the knowledge and ownership of the gospel. They don't live out the gospel in the real world. The church doesn't function like the church. We miss out our, on our purpose. 
This is one of several passages in the New Testament that clarifies the mission of the church for us. What does it say? Labor for the faith of the church. Labor for a true and ever-growing understanding of the gospel. Live out the gospel. The way Ephesians 4 puts it is that God gave certain gifted leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, make disciples who make disciples. Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Colossians 1.28 says, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We've actually adopted the wording here as the vision of our church. We exist to present everyone mature in Christ. We wanna labor for the faith of the saints. Labor so that they'd have a more and more mature understanding of the gospel such that we live out our faith day to day in practical ways for the good of one another, for the good of our community, for the good of this world so that God's glory might fill the earth. All of this is important because to the degree that we get this as a local church and to the degree that we own this as individuals within the local church will bring glory to God, will be useful for his kingdom purposes advancing. We'll be able to experience the joy of participating in Christ, in his mission. I think this means a few things for us. It means something for us as grace, uh, as a local church, as a body. It means something also for us as individuals. As grace, it means that we have to labor to clarify our mission, our vision. We have to labor to clarify the goal. This is what the elders have been doing for a while now. We too want to grow in the knowledge of the true gospel word. So we're always trying to refine, and that's especially true these past two years. We wanna make absolutely sure that we are aiming at the right target. And so occasionally we have to make these very, very tiny adjustments to make sure that we are getting dead center as best as we can. And we wanna find out what that target is and then helpfully lead people to hit that target so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Please know that we desire to align ourselves with God's purposes for his church. Elders of grace are under shepherds. We are under shepherds to the chief shepherd Jesus. And that means that we cannot lead this church based on our own prerogatives and our own desires if they be contrary to the desires of God for his church. And so that's our hope, that's our desire, and we need your help. We need to, to be a body. We need to partner with one another. And, and very practically, that means that we need your prayers. We need you to pray that, that we would be led by the Spirit in this, that we'd pr be protected as we do this. And not only that, we need your expectation that we would not go beyond or uh, below this that we would refuse to aim at different targets, but no, we would be concerned with the mission of the church and we would find that target, find the center of that and do everything we can to hit it head on. Pray for us, please. As individuals, 
It means that we lean in. We see this as our job too. Elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, staff, ushers, tech team, hands, feet, eyes, ears, hands. Everything, every aspect of this body, we lean into the mission of the church. We continually and collectively labor to accomplish the mission of the church. We work together. Or as Ephesians 4 or Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 says, we are a body with many parts, none more important than the others, all vitally important to us functioning as we are supposed to function as a church, all necessary, all useful. And we have a collective mission to present each other mature in Christ. And so we take advantage of however God has made us, whatever skills or talents or resources he has, he has afforded us. And we, we take advantage of the opportunities that arise to help each other grow in the faith and knowledge of the truth that we might live obedient and upright lives. It strikes me that one place where all of this kind of coalesces together is Adventure Week. One place that we can serve one place that we can be united together in a common faith, one place that we can seek to build up others in the faith, whether that be initially or in an ongoing way, a place that we can have a greater understanding of the gospel is Adventure Week. And right now there's a huge need for volunteers. What if we uh, united together and we resolved that this would be a, uh, an event at our church that that Betsy Clark had to turn people away from because we were so excited about serving at Adventure Week. This is a way that we can be a hand or a foot, an eye or an ear. It's a way that we can lean in. So I encourage you, do that. Do that. Flood the Adventure Week table after this service. Ministry has a mission. We see some of the church's mission and Paul's mission as an apostle. Paul wants to keep going. And so we can see why it's so important that we get this right. He shows us that ministry has a mission and it also has a motivation. Ministry has motivation. That's our second point. In order to see this, I want us to have eyes on verses two and three. If you will look at me, look at these with me. So Paul writes for the faith of God's elect and the, their knowledge of the truth. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So these verses, I believe, tell us why it's so important that we get our first point and embrace it wholeheartedly. Why? Because of the hope of eternal life. This is what motivated Paul and this is what is to motivate us as well. The grammar here shows us that in hope of eternal life is the rationale of Paul's apostolic ministry. He willingly and gladly poured himself out because of the hope of eternal life. He preached and and taught, he was considered a fool because of the hope of eternal life. And here Paul is telling us that eternal life is a reality. 
It's an actual thing. It's not a make-believe thing. It's not something that, that counselors or pastors share with you when you have a bad day so you won't be down or gloomy. No, it's a real thing. Life is gonna go forever. And there's actually a real thing called life in Christ. And that's meant to be an encouragement to us. How can we know that eternal life is a real thing? Places like 1 Corinthians, Paul connects the idea of eternal life to hope. And he says, if there is no eternal life, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead and we're not raised from the dead, there is no hope. How can we be sure that there is a reason to hope in this life? Because God promised it. Because God promised it. This is what Paul wants to get across about eternal life. God promised that eternal life is a real thing and God is not a liar. And so we can take this promise to the bank this morning. This is so wonderfully pastoral. I love that Paul takes us here. And grounding the hope of eternal life in God's character and his inability to lie, Paul sets God up against the Cretan pantheon. Remember, in the Cretans' understanding of religion, uh, the gods were, were just people like us who had, uh, had attained divinity. They were people who manipulated and lied and cheated all their way to the top. And so their culture, their society was shaped by this. They were liars. They were lazy. They were gluttonous. And this was celebrated, endorsed, expected. Can you imagine how that would erode trust in a society? Can you imagine how that would leave people ultimately feeling hopeless to the prospect of a, of a good future? How could a Cretan have hope? We all know what it's like to be betrayed or to have a family member promise us things and not come true. Those sorts of things happen in our worlds, right? And what happens? Trust is eroded. We begin to learn not to expect good things. Well, Paul comes along and says, yeah, the one true God, he's not like these false Cretan gods. No, the true God is faithful and true. There is no imperfection or impurity in him. There is no spot. There is no blemish. When he speaks, he speaks truly, always. You can take his word to the bank. We have evidence that God is not a liar. What's the evidence? The eternal, this eternal life has been promised and it has been manifested. Way back, Genesis 3, God promised that a redeemer would come. And as he did so, he gave hope of eternal life. As the story of the Bible advanced, we see more and more promises made by God that attest to the same thing. A savior is coming. A redeemer is coming. There is hope for you. You have hope for a future. You have hope for eternal life. God promised and he reiterated his promise. And so he promised to Adam and Eve and he promised to Abraham and he promised to Isaac and he promised to Jacob and he promised to Moses and he promised to David. And again and again and again, he promised that he was going to redeem his people and give them a hope for the future. 
Thousands of years have passed. So much time has passed that it almost seems like God truly is a liar. That his promise would not be fulfilled. But at the exact right time, at the proper time, the proper time politically, the proper time sociologically, theologically, at the exact right time, God manifested his promise of eternal life in a word, according to verse three. And that word is his gospel word. According to the gospel, Jesus came and in him was life and his life was the light of man. And as the famous verse says, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, obedient life, was crushed upon the cross in our place, rose to life, conquering death, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because of this, we now can live in him. Because Jesus lives, we can live forever. Eternal life. This is the word of eternal life that God promised. A word manifested in Christ the Son who died in our place and rose from the dead. And now this gospel word that was entrusted to Paul is now entrusted to the church to be preached to the ends of the earth. This eternal life is a life that breaks into the present. It's forever, but it affects us today. It can be experienced today. It's a life that will be experienced, enjoyed forevermore. And this life is what Paul puts forward as the motivation for us laboring for the faith and the knowledge of the saints of God. The idea here is like a person devoting their entire career to the study and cure of cancer. They, they spend their entire life, they, they desire this from youth. They, they get good grades so they can go to school and they, they go to med school and they study science and they, they do everything they can to devote themselves to ridding this world of a sickness that affects countless people in terrible ways. And then one day they run a program and boom, there it is. They have discovered the cure for cancer. It's done. They have figured it out. They have come up with a solution that will eradicate this sickness. Now imagine if that really happened. Imagine if that person got that, that success thing back on their computer screen. They found it. It's done. What do you think they would do after that? I think they'd say, wow, man, it sounds like a really great time to go get some Chick-fil-A, head home, watch some Netflix. Just going to probably call it a night early, go to sleep. I don't know. No. What would happen in this situation? There'd be celebration, right? This person would work the phones. They would work the emails. They would do everything in their power to get this news out. They would spread this far and wide. Why? Because life is at stake. Because people are actually literally dying to this. And this person has the solution. Well, this is the idea here for Paul. This affords us an opportunity to ask a really hard question. Paul's motivation to ministry as an apostle was the hope of eternal life. But please keep in mind here, he doesn't so much have his own eternal life in mind as the motivation. No, Paul knows who he is. And he knows where he is found. He is in Christ. 
He has been redeemed. He has been called on the road to Emmaus. He has been transferred from the kingdom of, doma- uh, the, from the kingdom of darkness to the, the kingdom of light. He knows who he is. He knows that he has received Christ's imputed righteousness. He knows eternal life and he knows that he will forever experience eternal life. No, he's not concerned about his own eternal life as if he has to work for his own eternal life. No, he is concerned for the eternal life of the elect. For God's people, his set apart apart chosen people, that they would know eternal life, that they would believe in Jesus that they would come to a greater knowledge and understanding of the gospel and live out eternal life, being prepared for eternal life. So the hard question for us is, this was Paul's motivation. Is this our motivation? Is this your motivation? Does the idea of eternal life and the hope of eternal life grip us and motivate us my fear is, is that we may not engage in this sort of chaos organizing ministry that God has called us to because we refuse to be amazed at the very things that God has given to us as motivation. This reminds me of Penn Jillette, of Penn and Teller, the famous comedy group. Um, In our circles, Christian circles, uh, Penn famously said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't evangelize, who don't share about Jesus. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make you socially awkward, can't respect that. May that not be said of us. We have the message of eternal life. And so what do we do? Two things I wanna urge you towards this morning where this point is concerned. First, Be amazed at the gift of life that you have received in Jesus. I think the only way that we are gonna be motivated by this and allow this to become the message of ministry is if we're gripped by the glory that God saves sinners in Christ and we are among that number, that we now have eternal life, that we currently experience the goodness and the grace of God, that we can taste God today. And so taste him experience his goodness, drink deeply from the wellspring of life. Know his peace, know his presence. Do everything you can to take advantage of the means of grace so that you can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ today, experiencing this eternal life, preparing yourself for eternal life so that it's a beautiful thing to you, that you might desire this to be known and experienced in others. And your brothers and sisters here in this room, amongst your neighbors, amongst your friends, your family, people to the ends of this earth. Know and experience eternal life today. Second, pray. What do we do when our hearts are not where we want them to be? We take all of that to the Lord in prayer. We confess that our hearts are broken We ask the Lord to repair our hearts, to to remake them, to make them new so that they beat for what God desires for them to beat for. Pray, 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 and continue praying. Prayer is the fuel of ministry. Shepherds get weary, ministers get tired, motivations get jacked up, and the fire becomes quenched. But God, 
God is the uncreated, unsustained one. He has no beginning. He has no end. He can lift us up on wings like eagles. He can put air in our wings. He can strengthen our weak knees and cause us to run. He can rework motivations. He can focus our efforts to make disciples. So go to him in prayer. Ask him to remake you so that we together might effectively do this work of ministry so that we might present one another mature in Christ so that we might go outside of these walls and call others to know the peace and power of Jesus that they might have the hope of eternal life as well. Let's pray now to this end. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that we can gather in his name sharing a common faith. And Lord, I pray now that you would bless us. You would help us to be people who are so in tune with the gospel that we would be full of faith, ever growing in amazement that you would save us, redeem us and call us to a holy calling. Set us apart so that we might experience your goodness, your grace forevermore. And so build us up now and lead us out. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.